Chapter Twenty Nine of the Trail of the Hawk. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti, MikeVendetti.com. Trail of the Hawk by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Twenty Nine. Like a country small boy waiting for the coming of his city cousin, who will surely have new ways of playing Indians, Carl prepared to see Ruth Winslow and her background. What was she? Who? Where? He pictured her as dwelling in everything from a millionaire's imitation chateau, with footmen and automatic elevators, to a bachelor gal's flat on an old-fashioned red-brick Harlem tenement. But more than that, what would she herself be like against that background? Monday he could think of nothing but the joy of having discovered a playmate. The secret popped out from behind everything he did. Tuesday— he was worried by finding himself unable to remember whether Ruth's hair was black or dark brown. Yet he could visualize Olive's ash blonde. Why? Wednesday afternoon, when he was sleepy in the office after eating too much beefsteak and kidney pie, drinking too much coffee, and smoking too many cigarettes, at lunch with Mr. Vanzale, when he was tortured by the desire to lay his head on his arms and yield to drowsiness. He was suddenly invaded by a fear that Ruth was snobbish. It seemed to him that he ought to do something about it immediately. The rest of the week he merely waited to see what sort of person the totally unknown Miss Ruth Winslow might be. His most active occupation outside the office was feeling guilty over not telephoning to Gertie. At 3.30 p.m. Sunday he was already encased in funeral morning clothes, and warning himself that he must not arrive at Miss Winslow's before five. His clothes were new, stiff as though they belonged to a waxed dummy. Their lines were straight and without individuality. He hitched his shoulders about and kept going to the mirror to inspect the fit of the collar. He repeatedly rebrushed his hair, regarding the unclean state of his military brushes with disgust. About six times he went to the window to see if it had started to snow. At ten minutes to four, he sternly jerked on his coat and walked far north of 92nd Street, then back. He arrived at a quarter to five, but persuaded himself that this was a smarter hour of arrival than five. Ruth Winslow's home proved to be a rather ordinary three-story and basement graystone dwelling with heavy Russian net curtains at the broad, clear glass windows of the first floor, and an attempt to escape from the stern drabness of the older type of New York houses by introducing a box stoop and steps with a carved stone boss laid, at the top of which perched a meek old lion of 1890, with battered ears and truly sensitive stone nose, a typical house, of the very well-to-do yet not wealthy upper-middle class, a house predicating one motor-car, three not-expensive maids, brief European tours, and the best preparatory schools and colleges for the sons. A maid answered the door and took his card, a maid in a frilly apron and black uniform, neither a butler nor a slatternly biddy. In the hall, as the maid disappeared upstairs, Carl had an impression of furnace heat and respectability, rather shy, uncomfortable, anxious to be acceptable, warning himself that as a famous aviator he need not be in awe of anyone, but finding that the warning did not completely take, he
he drew off his coat and gloves and after a swift inspection of his tie gazed about with more curiosity than he had ever given to any other house for all the stone lion in front this was quite the old line english basement house with the inevitable front and back parlors though here they were modified into drawing-room and dining-room the walls of the hall were decked with elaborate meaningless scrolls and plaster-based relief echoed by raised circles on the ceiling just above the hanging chandelier which was expensive and hideous a clutter of brass and knobby red and blue glass the floor was of hard wood and squares dark and richly polished highly self-respecting a floor that assumed civic responsibility from a republican point of view and a sound conservative business established since eighteen seventy five or eighteen eighty by the door was a huge japanese vase convenient either for depositing umbrellas or falling over in the dark then a long mirror in a dull red mahogany frame and a table of mahogany so refined that no one would ever dream of using it for anything more useful than calling cards it might have been the table by the king's bed on which he leaves his crowns on a little purple cushion at night solid and ostentatious the drawing-room to the left was dark and still unsympathetic and expensive a vista of brocade covered french gilt chairs and a marquetry table and a table of onyx top on which was one book bound in ooze calf and one vase cream-colored heavy carpet and a crystal chandelier fairly meticulous paintings of rocks and thatched cottages and ragged newsboys with faces like daniel webster all of them in large gilt frames protected by shadow boxes in a corner was a cabinet of gilt and glass filled with dresden china figurines and toy tables and a carbon swiss musical powder box the fireplace was of smooth chilly white marble with an ormolu clock on the mantelpiece and a fire-screen painted with watteau shepherds and shepherdesses making silken unreal love and scandalously neglecting silky unreal sheep by the hearth were shiny fire-irons which looked as though they had never been used the whole room looked as though it had never been used except during the formal calls of overdressed matrons with card-cases and prejudices the one human piece of furniture in the room a couch soft and slightly worn on which lovers might have sat and small boys bounced was trying to appear useless too under its row of stiff satin cushions with gold cords well-dusted chairs on which no one wished to sit expensive fireplace that never shone prized pictures with less imagination than the engravings on a bond that drawing-room had the soul of a banker with side whiskers carl by no means catalogued all the details but he did get the effect of ingrowing prosperity it was not certain that he thought the room hadn't bad taste it is not certain that he had any artistic taste whatsoever or that his attack upon the pretentiousness of authors had been based on anything more fundamental than a personal irritation due to having met blatant camp followers of the arts and it is certain that one of his reactions as he surveyed the abject respectability of the room was a slight awe at the solidarity of social position which it represented 
and which he consciously lacked. But whether from artistic instinct or from ignorance, he was sure that into the room ought to blow a sudden great wind, with the scent of forest and snow. He shook his head when the maid returned, and he followed her upstairs. Surely a girl reared here would never run away and play with him. He heard lively voices from the library above. He entered a room to be lived in, and be happy in, with a jolly fire on the hearth and friendly people on a big brown davenport. Ruth Winslow smiled at him from behind the colonial silver and thin cups on the tea-table. And as he saw her light-filled eyes, saw her cock her head slight gaily in welcome, he was again convinced that he had found a playmate. A sensation of being pleasantly accepted warmed him as she cried, "'So glad!' and introduced him, gave him tea and a cake with nuts in it. From a wing-chair, Carl searched the room and the people. There were two paintings of pale night sea and an arching Japanese bridge under slanting rain, both imaginative and well done. There was a mahogany escatera which might have been stiff, but was made human by scattered papers on the great blotter and books crammed into the shelves. Other books were heaped on a table as though people had been reading them. Later he found how amazingly they were assorted. The latest novel of Robert Chambers, beside H. G. Wells' First and Last Things, a dusty, expensive book on Italian sculpture near a cheap reprint of Dodo. The chairs were capricious, the piano workmanlike, upright, not dominating the room, but ready for music, and in front of the fire was an English setter, an aristocrat of a dog, with the light glittering on his slowly waving tail. The people fitted into the easy life of the room. They were New Yorkers, and unlike over half the population born there, considering New York a village, where one knows everybody and remembers when 14th Street was the shopping center. Olive Dunleavy was shinily present, her ash-blonde hair in a new coiffure. She was arguing with a man of tight morning clothes and a high-bred face about the merits of Parsifal, which Olive declared no one ever attended except as a matter of conscience. "'Now, Georgie,' she said, "'I said, Georgie, you shall have your opera.' and you shall jolly well have it alone, too. Olive was vivid about it all, but Carl saw that she was watching him, and he was shy as he wondered what Ruth had told her. Olive's brother, Philip Dunlevy, a clear-faced, slender, well-bathed boy of twenty-six, with too high forehead, with discontent in his face, and in his thin voice carelessly well-dressed in a soft gray suit, and an impressionistic tie, was also inspecting Carl, while talking to a pretty, commonplace, finishing-school finished girl. Carl instantly disliked Philip Donlevy, and was afraid of his latent sarcasm. Indeed, Carl felt more and more that beneath the friendliness with which he was greeted there was no real welcome as yet, save possibly on the part of Ruth. He was taken on trial. He was a Mr. Erickson not any Mr. Erickson in particular. Ruth, while she poured tea, was laughing with a man and a girl. Carl himself was part of a hash group, an older woman who seemed to know Rome and Paris better than New York and might be anything from a milliner to a modernaire, 
a keen-looking youngster with tortoise-shell spectacles. Finally, Ruth's elder brother, Mason J. Winslow, Jr., a tall, thin, solemn, intensely well-intoned man of thirty-seven, with a long, clean-shaven face and a long, narrow head, whose growing baldness was always spoken of as a result of his hard work. Mason J. Winslow, Jr., spoke hesitantly, worried over everything, and stood for morality and good business. He was rather dull in conversation, rather kind in manner, and accomplished solid things by unimaginatively sticking at them. He didn't understand people who did not belong to a good club. Carl contributed a few careful platitudes to a frivolous discussion of whether it would not be advisable to solve the woman's suffrage question by taking the vote away from men and women both and conferring it on children. Mason Winslow ambled to a big table for a cigarette, and Carl pursued him. While they stood talking about the times are bad, Carl was spying upon Ruth, and the minute her current group wandered off to the Davenport, he made a dash for the tea-table and got there before Olive's brother, Philip Donlevy, who was obviously maneuvering like himself. Philip gave him a covert. Where you, fellow? Glance took a cake and retired. From his wicker chair facing Ruth's, Carl said gloomily, "'It isn't done.' "'Yes,' said Ruth. "'I know it. But still, some very smart people are doing it this season.' "'But do you think the woman that writes what the man will wear in the theater program would stand for it?' "'Not,' gravely considered Ruth, "'if there were black stitching on the dress glove. Yes, there is some authority for frilled shirts.' You think it might be considered, then? I will not come between you and your haberdasher, Mr. Erickson. This is a foolish conversation. But since you think the better classes do it, gee, it's getting hard for me to keep up this kind of dolly dialogue. What I wanted to do was to request you to give me, concisely but fully, a sketch of who is Miss Ruth Winslow, and save me for making any pet particular breaks. And hereafter, I warn you, I am going to talk like my cousin, the carpet-slipper model. Name? Ruth Winslow. Age? Between twenty and thirty. Father? Mason Winslow, manufacturing contractor for concrete. Brothers? Mason Winslow, Jr., whose poor dear head is getting somewhat bald, as you observe. And Bobby Winslow, ne'er-do-well who is engaged in subverting discipline at medical school and who dances divinely. My mother died three years ago. I do nothing useful, but I play a good game of bridge and possess a voice that those who know pronounce passable. I have a speaking knowledge of French, a reading knowledge of German, and a singing knowledge of Italian. I am wearing an imported gown, for which the house of Winslow will probably never pay. I live in a, this house. I am an Episcopalian not so much high church as highly infrequent church. I regard the drawing-room downstairs as the worst example of late Victorian abominations in my knowledge, but I shall probably never persuade Father to change it, because Mason thinks it is sacred to the past. My ambition as life is to be catty to the Newport set after I have married an English diplomat with a divine mustache, never having met such a personage outside of Tattler and Vogue. I can't give you very many details regarding him. Oh, yes, of course. 
You'll have to play a marvelous game of polo and have a chateau in Provence and also a ranch in Texas, where I shall wear riding breeches and live next to nature and have a Chinese cook in blue silk. I think that's my whole story. Oh, I forgot. I play at the piano and am ignorant and completely immersed in the world's traditions of the wealthy mix of the Upper West Side. And I always pretend that I live here instead of on the Upper East Side, because the air is better. What is the Upper West Side is a state of mind. Indeed it is not. It is a state of pocketbook. The Upper West Side is composed entirely of people born in New York who want to be in society, whatever that is, and can't afford to live on Fifth Avenue. You know, everybody who went to school with everybody and played in the park with everybody, and mostly your papa is in wholesale trade and haughty about people in retail. You go to Europe one summer and to the Jersey coast the next. All your clothes and parties and weddings and funerals might be described as elegant. That's Upper West Side. Now, the dread truth about you. Do you know, after the unscrupulous way in which you've followed up a mere chance introduction at a tea somewhere, I suspect you to be a well-behaved young man who leads an entirely blameless life or else you'd never dare to jump the fence and come and play in my backyard when all the other boys politely knock at the front door and get sent home. Ray, well, I'm a wage-slave of the Van Zale Motor People, in charge of the Turricar Department, age 28, almost, habits all bad. No, I'll tell you, I'm one of those stern, silent men of granite you read about. And only my man knows the human side of me, because all the guys on Wall Street tremble in my presence. Yes, but then how can you belong to the Blue Bowl sodality? Mm, yes, I've got it. You must have read novels in which the stern, silent man of granite has a secret tenderness in his heart, and he keeps the band of the first cigar he ever smoked in a little safe in the wall and the first dollar he ever made in a frame. That's me. Of course, the cigar was given him by his flaxen-haired sweetheart back in Jenkson Corner, and in the last chapter he goes back and marries her. Not always, I hope. Of what Carl was thinking is not recorded. Well, as a matter of fact, I've been a fairly industrious young man of granite the last few months, getting out the Touricar. What is the Touricar? It sounds like an island inhabited by cannibals. Exports hemp and coconut. See pink dotted map. Nor by nor'east of Mogadar, Carl explained. I'm terribly interested, said Ruth. But she made it sound as though she really was. I think it's so wonderful. I want to go off tramping through the Berkshires. I'm so tired of going to the same old places. Sometime, when you're quite sure I'm an esteemable young YMCA man, I'm going to try to persuade you to come out for a real tramp. She seemed to be considering the idea, not seriously, but Philip Donnelly inventured. For some time Philip had been showing signs of interest in Ruth and Carl. Now he sauntered to the table, begged for another cup of tea, said agreeable things in regard to putting orange marmalade in tea, and calmly established himself. Ruth turned toward him. Carl fancied that there was, for himself, in Ruth's voice, 
something more friendly in her infectious smile, something more intimate than she had given the others. But when she turned precisely the same cheery expression upon Philip, Carl seemed to have lost something which he had trustingly treasured for years. He was the more forlorn as Olive Donovely joined them, and Ruth, Philip, and Olive discussed the engagement of one Mary Meldon. Olive recalled Miss Meldon as she had been in school days. At the convent of the Sacred Heart, Philip told them for her flirtations at the old Long Beach Hotel. The names of New York people whom they had always known, the names of country clubs, Baltersall and Meadowbrook and Peace Waters, the names of streets with the sharp differentiation between 74th Street and 75th Street, Durland's Riding Academy, the rink of a Monday morning, and other souvenirs of a New York childhood, the score of the last American polo team and the coming dances, and these things shut Carl out as definitely as though he were a foreigner. He was lonely. He disliked Phil Dunleavy's sarcastic references. He wanted to run away. Ruth seemed to realize that Carl was shut out. Said she to Phil Dunleavy, I wish you could have seen Mr. Erickson save my life last Sunday. I had an experience. What was that? asked the man whom Olive called Georgie, joining the tea-table set. The whole room listened as Ruth recounted the trip to Chinatown, Mrs. Salisbury's party, and the hero who had once been a passenger on an airplane. Throughout she kept turning toward Carl. It seemed to reunite him to the company. As she closed, he said, The thing that amused me about the parlor aviator was his laying down the law about the Atlantic will be crossed before the end of 1913, and his assumptions that we'll all have airplanes in five years. I know from my own business, the automobile business, about how much such prophecies are worth. Don't you think the Atlantic will be crossed soon? asked the keen-looking man with the tortoise-shell spectacles. Bill Dunleavy broke in with an air of amused sophistication. I think the parlor aviator was right, really. You know, aviation is too difficult a subject for the layman to make any predictions about, either what it can do or can't do. Oh, yes, admitted Carl, and the whole room breathed. Oh, yes. Dunleavy went on in his thin, overbred, insolent voice. Now I have it on good authority from a man who's a member of the Aero Club that next year will be the greatest year aviation has ever known, and that the Wrights have an airplane up their sleeve, which with they'll cross the Atlantic without a stop, during the spring of 1914, at the very latest. That's unfortunate, because the aviation game has gone up completely in this country, except for hydro-aeroplaning and military aviation, and possibly it never will come back," said Carl, a hint of pique in his voice. What is your authority for that? Phil turned a large, bizarre ring round on his slender left little finger, and the whole room waited, testing this positive-spoken outsider. Well, drawled Carl. I have fairly good authority. Walter McMonnies, for instance, and he is possibly the best flyer in the country today, except for Lincoln Beachy. Oh, yes, he's a good flyer, said Phil, contemptuously, with a shadowy smile for Ruth. Still, he's no better than Aaron Solomon's, and he isn't half so great a flyer as that chap with the same surname as your own, Hawk Erickson, whom I myself saw coming up the Jersey coast 
when he won the big race to New York. You see, I've been following this aviation pretty close. Carl saw Ruth's head drop an inch, and her eyes closed to a slit as she inspected him with sudden surprise. He knew that it had just occurred to her who he was. Their eyes exchanged understanding. She does get things, he thought and said lightly. Well, I honestly hate to take the money, Mr. Donlevy, but I'm in a position to know that McMoney's is a better flyer today than Erickson is. Be. But see here, because I happen to be Hawk Erickson. What a chump I am, groaned the man in toward the shell spectacle. Of course, I remember your picture now. Phil was open-mouthed. Ruth laughed. The rest of the room gasped. Mason Winslow, long and bald, was worrying over the question of how to receive aviators at tea. And Carl was shy as a small boy caught stealing jam. End of chapter 29